Well, before I uh, got the flu and, and missed a week, and I was able to watch Harvey last week. I got blessed by that, looking at Josiah, uh, the king and all. Uh, we were looking at, we looked at the, the crucifixion, and then we looked at what was going on for Jesus to be buried. And, and, and we looked at Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthy man who had been part of the Jewish leadership, the, one of the religious leaders, and, and also Nicodemus coming to take Jesus' body down off of the cross and to put him in the tomb. And, so we, we looked at that in some depth. I'm not going to go over it again, but it's something I want to sort of, it's something that gets me scratching my head regarding the resurrection, and that's how many times Jesus put that truth, that central truth. As I mentioned, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, we of all people are most pitiable, that we have been running in vain and our faith is in vain. It is that important. And so as I look at this, I think, how often did Jesus put that truth before uh, people in his day? And and I was looking back and I saw uh, here in, in Matthew chapter 16, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And so there he was up in what we call the Golan Heights at Caesarea Philippi, a great center for cultic religions of that day and had been for centuries, all the way back to the Old Testament, uh, where they worshiped Baal and, and the Asherah poles and, and all that. And here he was standing in front of the Temple of Zeus and 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 another temple there, the Temple of Pan, who was a kind of a half-man, half-goat, Greek God of misery. Uh, and so he's standing in front of all these false pagan things. And he says to his guys, look, I'm headed for Jerusalem one more time. And they're going to kill me. But don't worry about that because I will rise on the third day. And he tells them plainly. And then in Matthew chapter 17, this is while they were in Galilee. Now they moved from the Golan Heights up at Caesarea Philippi, a little further south. They're in the Galilee region, which is the northern region in Israel. And he says, while they're staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them again, he says, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. And it says that they were exceedingly sorrowful. The third time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus puts this before his men and he had put it before the Jewish leaders he had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, referring to the temple of his body. They said, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, thinking in their minds about Herod's temple, which was the physical temple of that day. Uh, and and he, had, he had also told them that this generation, it's, it's a wicked generation. It seeks after a sign, and none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And we know uh, the story of Jonah being three days and nights in the belly of the fish. And, and, and he's saying, so will the Son of Man be. And, and, and yet, so he's putting it before the people. He even put it before the Gentiles. Remember the Greeks, they came to him at the feast uh, before he, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and they wanted to talk to him. And he said, no, let me talk to you. And, and he said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it's not going to produce any grain. But if it does that, it will produce a lot of grain. Again, signifying the death that he was going to die. And then finally, in, in Matthew chapter 20, 
it says that Jesus was actually going up to Jerusalem. This is his last trip to Jerusalem, his last Passover to attend, because there he would become the Lamb of God who's slain for the sins of the world. And, and he knows that, and he's trying to I- illustrate that to his people, to his men. And he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day, he'll rise again. Something that is really interesting to me is that we are told, Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he said, we walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus had demonstrated over and over and over again, over three plus years, that he was indeed Messiah, that he did these powerful signs. He did these miracles, if you would, bending the laws of physics. I've mentioned before, he owns the laws of physics. It was no problem for him. He was just being who he is. But he had the ability to bend the laws of physics to produce enough food to feed 5,000 men, 15,000 people. He had the power to calm the waves of the sea. He had the ability to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had powerful, powerful miracles that he had done. And these men had looked on. We've talked many times in our studies in the Gospel of John that their view of him was here, and what he was constantly wanting to do was to elevate it to here, to, to have them connect the dots, to have them connect that if he has the ability to do these things, then he certainly has the ability to forgive sin. And so now as we look at the resurrection, we're looking at the singular most powerful sign of all, and that's where he rises from the dead. Do you really believe that? I do. Because I know that he has the power. He has demonstrated that over and over. And yet these people that were living it, we look at the narrative from the knowledge that he did. We look at the Bible, we read the Bible from the knowledge that he rose from the dead. These people are living it out. And we're seeing that in the world, seeing is believing. But there is, we've talked many times about this upside down kingdom that we live in because the kingdom of God runs on completely different principles than this world. And truly in the kingdom, believing is seeing. Whole different thing. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what these people see as they come to the tomb, as they come to the grave uh, this morning, because uh, it's just a very interesting narrative. Now we're going to look at Mary Magdalene this morning as uh, she's preeminent in these verses in John chapter 20. And, and we gotta, we'll, we'll look at some things about her. I'm just going to begin in verse 1, and then we'll start looking at her. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So when she went, what the, the text seems to indicate here is it, it what the Jews did was they broke the night into four different parts. The first watch, second, third, and fourth watch. It says that she went to the tomb during the fourth watch, which would have been 3 to 6 a.m. So it's still dark, but you've got to realize something about Mary. She absolutely 
adored Jesus. She loved him with a very powerful love. We'll see that as we go through here. We'll see how that manifests in her life and through the narrative. Remember, she is going to the tomb and the text in other gospels indicates that she was one of several women that went. John focuses on her. Now, John edits a lot of things out. If you've noticed that in the narrative, the reason why many times we've mixed in what is said in the other gospels is because uh, John is, he is right to the point and he is, the whole thing that he puts together as he relates these things is he is wanting to bring people to the point that they would believe. And we'll see that at the end of this chapter. So here's Mary. She goes to the tomb during the fourth watch of the night because she couldn't wait to get there along with the ladies. They had brought the rest of the spices and ointments and all. They were going to finish the job that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had started before Sabbath began after they took him down from the cross. Remember, Jesus was on the cross on Friday from about noon till three. Uh, that's when he gave up the ghost. And at that point, they went to Pilate. Joseph went to Pilate, said, hey, would you let me have the body and to take care of that? The Jews wanted the three people on the crosses off the cross. It tells us in Deuteronomy that they were not allowed to keep a dead body on a cross overnight. That brought a curse on the people. And so they wanted to get it off the cross. They And so Jesus and the other two guys were taken down. Now, Jesus was taken to the tomb. It says that, that, that Nicodemus was packing a 100 pounds of spices along with him. We, we translated that into our weights and measures. It would be about 75 pounds U.S., but uh, in the Roman measure, it was 100 pounds. And, and so he's got this big load of stuff, and they're wrapping the body. The way that they did it was they would wrap the body with strips of cloth, strips of linen. And between the layers, they would pack these embalming spices and ointments, and it would they would continue. It would it'd be like wrapping a mummy. And, and they had a whole separate piece for the head piece, and we'll look at that as we get into the text here. There was a whole separate piece there. So they would wrap the body. They would, they would put the body into the tomb with the feet facing the entrance. And then they would begin on each side of the slab. There would be an aisle on each side of the slab, that they laid the body on and in a slightly elevated place for the head, and they would begin to wrap his body. Now, they ran out of time because at sunset, it's Sabbath. And if you're a good first century Jew, you stop. And at that point, they were done. So Mary comes in the morning before dawn, and she just wants to honor the Lord. She is not looking for a resurrected Jesus. She comes for a dead Jesus. And we'll see here that she still addresses him as Lord. Uh, that humbles me. I'll tell you what. She's coming after a guy that she believes is dead. And she still calls him my Lord. As we look at this, we'll see. So she's with at least three other women coming to complete the work. And she gets to the tomb and she sees that the stone has been removed. All right. Now, she's mentioned, let me just give you a little background on Mary. She's mentioned 14 times in the Gospels, eight times with other women, but uh, nearly every one of those times she's mentioned first. She's preeminent. Uh, we see her five times being alone. And, and we look at her, now her name was Miriam. I mean, that Mary is the English word. Maria is the Greek word. Miriam is the Hebrew word. So Miriam of Magdala, not Magdalene. Now we call her Mary Magdalene, and that's fine. I'm not going to argue with that. But literally her name was Mary from Magdala. Now Magdala 
was a city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember when we looked at the cliffs of Arbel. It was these beautiful cliffs, probably where Jesus went up on and watched the guys when they were straining against the oars the night that the storm blew up on the sea and he had dismissed the crowd and all that. But on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee is a little town called Magdala. It's still there today. It's like 25, 27,000 people now, but it was just a small community. And when he went through, as he was preaching, in the regions of Galilee, he came to Magdala one day and there was a woman who had seven demons and her name was Miriam. And it tells us in Luke chapter 8 that that seven demons had come forth from her as he ministered. In Mark chapter 16, it says, and this is in the resurrection account, that he had appeared to Miriam or to Mary first and that he had cast seven demons out of her. So I am not an expert, and nor do I believe anybody reasonably could be on demon possession. Uh, don't believe that Christians can be possessed. I believe that we can be harassed. We can be oppressed. There's, and you can get into a whole deal there, and I, and I really don't want to go down that road. That's a, a rabbit trail I'll stay away from this morning. Um, but the point is, is that Mary somehow had given entrance to these seven demons. And Perhaps a thought would form in her mind and, 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 and these demons laying over her mind, it, she would want to speak one thing and something wretched would come out. We know that when Jesus deals with demonic forces and he deals with people who have been possessed by demons, that they're not behaving well. They're, that she wasn't, you know, I want you to understand too, this is not, Mary Magdalene, it's it, church tradition paints her as the harlot, as the prostitute that Jesus, that had, wiped her feet, uh, you know, poured the oil on his feet and, and wiped her feet with her tears and all of that. This isn't the same Mary. There's nothing in the Bible that says that Mary Magdalene was that woman. Now, Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute, but she was probably what they considered a lunatic. Uh, and that's a biblical word, by the way. And what it means is to be smitten by the moon. They believed in the first century, if you, you spent too much time in the moonlight, that you would be affected by it adversely. And uh, they had some full moon theology back then. I've heard some things these days too. But the point is that she was not right. And the first thing that she saw when that whole demonic thing was lifted you can bet she was looking right into the eyes of Jesus and that she discovered love there that she had never known. And yeah, I, I'm interpreting this, but think about it, guys. To be that far down, to be that oppressed, to be possessed by demonic spirits and to have them cast out, and the first clear thoughts that you have is looking into the eyes of this itinerant preacher from Galilee that had just cast these things out of you, and there's something different about him. And so she fell in love with the Lord. And I don't mean in a romantic way, but she loved him. She had a deep, deep love for Jesus. And so she had been at the crucifixion. The, all four Gospels place the women at the crucifixion. Luke leaves the names out, but the other uh, two include Mary Magdalene by name at the crucifixion, watching from a distance. Uh, one of the Gospels tends to indicate that she came up close at the end. And so she's watching from a distance. It also tells us that she was there when they put Jesus into the tomb and that they watched to see where they had laid his body. And so now here it is Sunday morning uh, after Jesus had been there since Friday afternoon. 
and, and she's coming to finish the work. She's coming to honor the Lord. She's coming to, again, to a dead Jesus in her mind. Uh, by the way, we look at uh, people wonder, well, how is it that Jesus was crucified on Friday and he rose on Sunday? And they say it was three days. Isn't that two? Less than two? Yeah, and the way we look at it, but you've got to realize the Jewish day, is they structure their day a whole lot differently than we do because the day began at sunset, and then, at, well, at sunrise, the day began, but they literally began the day at when the sun went down for the next day. That's why Jesus was crucified the same day as the Last Supper. He had supper on, on Thursday at sunset. It became Friday. He had the Passover with his guys, went to the garden, was arrested, and then was crucified on Friday afternoon. Because if you look at it, he was there on Friday. At sunset, it became Saturday. On Saturday at sunset, it became Sunday. He was there three days, according to their way of thinking. So don't let that trip you up. It's very logical when you understand that they didn't measure days the same way that we do in the United States. Interesting, as far as the timeline goes here, looking at uh, the other Gospels, uh, they tell us that the Jews, they began to worry about Jesus because they knew that there was something going on. They were worried that his disciples were going to steal his body and, and that they could paint him as a martyr. And so they went on Saturday, they went to Pilate and they got a Roman guard assigned to the tomb and a Roman seal placed on the tomb. Now, the penalties were severe. This would have been a guard of about 16 men. A typical Roman guard was a, it was a small garrison of 16 guys and they would be there and their job was to protect the tomb. The Roman seal on the tomb was to, to prove that it had not been disturbed. And so they had been appointed and there they were in the garden and the other gospels tell us that when the angels appeared and rolled away the stone and then sat on it, that they were flopping around. It says that they were as dead men there. And, and so all of this happens before Mary gets there as we look at the narrative in the Gospel of John. So this is all taking place. These men have been posted. They go running off. They don't go to the Romans. They go to the priests. They go to the religious leaders and say, hey, you know, this is, you know, this is what happened. And so they're actually paid off. The priests pay them off and say, all right, if anybody asks you, just tell them that we saw the disciples come and steal his body and they carted him off so they could do their deal. And that became a prominent theme in the first century going forward for the resurrection. People that did not believe would adopt that view. It was a very popular view. It's also part of why we see later this day that the men are locked into the upper room. They're separated off. They're by themselves. And it says that the door was shut. Now, what it means by shut was even it was, it was shut and barred. It was shut and locked. And so they had locked themselves in for fear of the Jews is what it says. And that's why. Because they didn't know what the Jews' disposition was towards them now that the body was missing. Verse 2. Now, it says that Mary saw the stone uh, and, and that she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. They don't, there's no mention of who they is. I mean, we all know about what they say. I mean, it's sort of a generic they. She doesn't know who it is, but she's assuming that someone or someones had taken and stolen the body of Jesus. 
And when she says, we don't know where they've laid him, it's, again, it's a strong indication that she's not alone in this. John just centers on her because she's the one that ran back to tell the guys. All right? So, uh, verse 3, it says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple who were going to the, and were going to the tomb. Now, John names himself as the other disciple here, as he does all through the Gospel of John. Remember, whenever he's making reference to himself in this Gospel, he refers to himself as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, in that, um, here he's talking about the other disciple. He's referring to himself. Uh, and says in verse 4 that they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Now think about this. I, John is over 90 years old as he writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, granted, absolutely. And so he's looking back and I, I can just think, I picture him remembering his youth. You know, man, I remember running to that tomb and there was Peter, older guy. John is, he's probably in his late teens, at the most early 20s here. He's a young man and he's got lots of energy. And so he and Peter start out for the tomb. And it's interesting that John is humble enough to refer to himself in the abstract, but he's still competitive enough to let him know, let us know that he dusted Peter on the way to the tomb. I just think that that's interesting. Uh, so in verse 5, it says, And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. So it's beginning to get light. They're beginning to get some relief and to be able to see into this thing. And he describes... What it, now, something interesting here, and I want to just bring your attention. The word saw here throughout this passage is not the same Greek word. What John does is he uses specific Greek words on purpose, and what he illustrates is a deepening understanding as the story goes forward. And you'll see that. I'll, I'll call it out. So when John saw the word, the Greek word is blepo, and it means to just to see. It means to look at something. You don't have, there's not a big thought process behind it. Uh, it's just you see it, and that's what it is. So Blepo is just, and, and of course it can motivate you to action. I mean, when Mary saw that the stone had been rolled away, it's Blepo. She saw it. It was something that she saw. She acted on it. She ran back to get the guys because that's not, you know, that shouldn't be how it is. Obviously somebody's stolen the body. Something's going on here. I need some help. I'm in over my head. I'll go back and get the guys. So the guys get there and John looks into the tomb and he sees that Things are different. They're not messed up. He's seeing the grave clothes, but they're empty. He's seeing, he and Peter both, they see the headpiece, but it's empty. And it says that he saw that. He didn't have anything really to conclude at that point. But in verse 6, it says, And then Simon Peter came, and following him, he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So, I just think it's interesting, again, looking at these two gentlemen's character, I mean, John is a good Jewish boy, and Jews don't have a lot to do with dead things. Uh, they're completely unclean, and I don't know what his motivation for stopping at the entrance to the tomb was, if it was out of respect for Jesus, or if it was uh, out of obedience to uh, the Jewish laws at that time, but he stops. Now, Peter, good old Peter, um, full of impetuous action, 
doesn't stop. He just goes blowing right into the tomb and he gets in there and he makes an observation now. And when Peter, it says that Peter saw, it's not blepo. It's not the same word. It's translated the same in English, but that word is theorio. Okay. And theorio is where we get the word theory or theorize. All right. So Peter steps in and he looks. And what that means is something that catches your attention. And, And what it means is it's more than a glance. Peter looks and makes an observation and holds his attention. He's going, the grave clothes, the strips of linen, the spices, they're, they're empty. And so he's looking, and then it says the other disciple in verse 8, who came to the tomb first, he went in also and he saw and believed. Now, that's another Greek word. I love it when we see that, it, you, that these things, again, we see blepo to see something, to just see it and to not really have you know, a lot of interaction with it. And then we see theorio, which means to see it catches your attention. You're starting to make an observation here and, and you're looking at it and you're processing it. Now, when John steps into the tomb in verse eight, uh, the word is aidon. And what that means is to understand. So when John steps into the tomb now, he looks at the grave clothes and he understands what's going on. He's not there. He's risen from the dead. And so John looks and he, what he sees is the body had come out of the grave wrappings. It was gone. And Jesus, he's out of there. He is risen. So he understood. It didn't, wasn't that he just saw with his eyes and he believed that John understood what was going on and he believed it. And he, it says, it says that he believed. The word pistuo, used over 90 times here in the Gospel of John. It's a a verb. It means not just believe to give mental assent. It means I believe and that produces action in my life, in my heart. And so John believes this. He understands what's going on. Verse 9, for as yet they didn't know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So I think that's an interesting passage or an interesting verse here because John is being very honest as he writes this, as he relates this to us. He's saying, look, I didn't look at the grave clothes and see them empty and realize that Jesus had risen from the dead. I'm, I'm telling you, that's what I saw. That was what I concluded. That's what I understood. But there wasn't a doctrinal premise to this. This is simply what I observed, and I believed that Jesus was not there. All right? Uh, So knowing the fact of the resurrection, it's important. But it's an important start. But it's not enough. Uh, We need to let the Bible tell us the meaning and the importance of Jesus' resurrection. They had no point of reference at this point. They did not understand what the resurrection was about. They didn't understand the purpose of the resurrection. They had no point of reference. And we'll see as this chapter goes on, we probably won't get to it this morning, but we'll see as this chapter goes on that Jesus sees to it that they get the full understanding, the full meaning of the things that are taking place as they're here at the tomb and then they're back at the upper room and, and dealing with Jesus as things unfold. So that John saw this, again, seeing is believing to a point. It would have to, they would have to come to a point where their believing produced true faith and an understanding of what the resurrection was about. So again, these guys came looking for a dead Jesus and they found an empty tomb and it was beginning to impact them. The full impact wouldn't be realized until later on and we'll get to that as we go. So 
it's interesting here. The Jews believed, they believed in a general resurrection. Uh, at least the Pharisees did. Now, the Sadducees did not. They were the liberals of that day. Uh, fake news. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but the Sadducees didn't believe in, in the, the resurrection. They were, they had a very liberal theology and, and they had, they were just into all kinds of strange things. It's not going to go there. But the Pharisees were conservative. Yeah, they were creepy guys, but they were very conservative in their theology. And they believed from Daniel chapter 12, Daniel speaks of the resurrection, a general resurrection. He talks about uh, that some will be resurrected to life everlasting life, and some will be resurrected to contempt, speaking prophetically of the resurrection, but in a general sense. Now, there's something interesting here about what Jesus had been telling his men, and when it says that they didn't understand yet that he had to be raised again, to rise again from the dead in verse 9. In Matthew chapter 17, we see the same terms here. It says in 17, 9, it says, now as they came down from the mountain, that's they had been up on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. Remember when Jesus and Moses and Elijah and all that? And, and they came down from the mountain and Jesus is talking to them. It says, Jesus commanded them saying, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, interesting wording there. Again, looking at that in the original language, the, the Greek is ek nekros. Okay, necros is, you know, necrotic tissues like dead tissue. So ek necros means, it, it doesn't mean just rise from the dead. It means rise out from among the dead. Interesting. He's talking about a specific resurrection, not a general resurrection, when he is telling this to his guys back in Matthew 17. It's the same term that John uses now, 90-some years old, looking back, writing again under the inspiration of the Spirit, that they didn't understand the Scriptures relating to Jesus rising from among the dead. All right? That he would be unique in that way. There would be a unique resurrection for him. And that's the point. Now, his men constantly questioned themselves about him coming out from among the dead, going forward from there. Verse 10, now the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, so interesting here, Mary goes and she finds Peter and John. Now, the last time we see Peter is when he went out absolutely broken as he heard the rooster crow, as he had denied the Lord three times, the third time with a curse, calling down a curse upon himself. And, and, and so here he is, he's broken. And if you've wondered to Peter during these dark, dark hours while Jesus was in that grave, uh, I can see in this that John somehow got a hold of Peter and took him in. He not only took in Jesus's mother, Mary, but he took in Peter as well, because here's Peter on Sunday morning in the company of John. Now, remember when they were when they went to the trial there at Annas's house, that John knew some of the people who were in the, the high priest's company. And he actually got in to the, the deal in the courtyard and he actually got Peter in. Remember in, in the narrative that he gets Peter in as well because he was connected somehow. Well, he would have been there when Peter was broken and took off. And I think it speaks highly of John's heart here in going after Peter and, and in a, a very loving way, taking him in as he's going through this very difficult time knowing that he had fulfilled Jesus' prophetic word against him, that he, had, that he had, had denied the Lord three times. And so Peter's with John at this point. They go to probably to John's house at this point. 
Now, verse 11, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Now, if you'll notice and looked, <clears throat> excuse me, it's in italics here in the text. That means it was added for translation. So let me read that again, but without the italicized stuff. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down into the tomb. Right now, the tomb would have had an opening. Now, this is a rich man's tomb. Many times the tomb had just enough room to put the body in. They didn't have a lot of room to go in and stand. Now, if, if I believe that personally, my, we looked at the tombs a few weeks ago. We looked at Gordon's Calvary or the garden tomb. And then we looked at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I personally believe that the one that makes the most sense, because Golgotha, the place of the skull, is right there and all of the signs are there, that that was where it was. Now, you can get 28 people, I think, into that tomb. And there, again, there was a stone slab and aisles on both sides, and they would have been able to fit a number of people in there. It would have had a larger opening than the customary regular Joe's tomb. This is a wealthy man's tomb. It had not been used. And so as Mary is looking at this thing, the only way to get in is she has to stoop down and to stoop into the tomb. It, sh it told us that when Peter and John were there, that they also stooped to go in. So we can assume that there's a lower opening than the height of a full-grown person here, and that she probably didn't stoop down to look into the tomb. She probably stooped down into the tomb here. And so it says that uh, she was outside the tomb weeping, and when she stooped down into the tomb, there she's now, you got to understand, she's not just quietly weeping. This is Jewish culture. Uh, I don't know if you've seen people when they're mourning in Middle Eastern cultures, it's loud. And she's sobbing. She's wailing. She is in absolute misery as she is standing here at the tomb. And, and she's mourning uh, this Jesus that she had come to love and had been with now for years after she had been delivered from the demonic forces that had held her. And so this is a powerful scene as she stoops down and she stoops into the tomb. It says in verse 12 that she saw two angels in white sitting. Now, the word in white there is leukos. It means a brilliant white. This is an otherworldly white. They're not just sitting there in nice, you know, starched, uh, bleached stuff. They are, their clothes are glowing. So she sees two angels there sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And so what's interesting here is Peter and John didn't see the angels in there. The angels evidently manifested for Mary. Uh, we don't know a lot about it. We know that there's two angels that are mentioned in the other Gospels, and some they talk about one. But, but here, Mary steps into this tomb. She stoops into this tomb, and she sees two angels, one at the head and one at the foot of the slab where Jesus' body has lain. Now, in previous studies, I've talked about this and talked about the, the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember what the mercy seat looked like? It had a cherubim on one side and a cherubim on the other. And, and the mercy seat was where the presence of God dwelt. And the priest would go in and, and this told, talked about in Leviticus 16. The priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, sprinkle the blood seven times. And, and, and we see the, the seven places where Jesus bled from his body onto that stone. And I mean, you see a perfect picture and fulfillment of that which was way back in the Old Testament 
uh, about the presence of God, the place where God would dwell, the place where sin would be atoned for. Now, I want to be careful here because Jesus didn't atone for sin in the tomb. He atoned for sin on the cross. However, I believe that the mercy seat was a type what a type means, it means it's an impression that's given in the Old Testament that the mercy seat is a type for the, for the tomb of Christ. That the fulfillment of what that pointed to with that annual sprinkling of blood seven times in front of the mercy seat by the high priest once a year only when he could go into the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God and even then had to have smoke that, that kind of filtered the presence so that he wouldn't die that this is a fulfillment of that. And when Mary sees one angel at the head, one angel at the foot, and she sees perhaps the stains from where his body had lay, it's a fulfillment of what was pictured and prefigured in the book of Leviticus way back in the Old Testament. Uh, not going to spend a lot of more time on that. Uh, we're going to look at, on, on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to take a look at Leviticus 16. We're going to look at the scapegoat. And uh, we're going to look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of that uh, and some other things in the Old Testament kind of bring it forward. Uh, so we'll wait for three weeks until um, we're actually teaching in this passage again. So, but enough said on that. Just to understand that, that Mary's, she's distraught. She's, Peter and John, yeah, they didn't see this. She's into the tomb. She's weeping. She's sobbing. She sees these two angels. She's not impressed with them. She doesn't go, ooh, angels. I mean, no, she's, she is single-minded at this point. She is grieving. And I don't know, if, if you've experienced profound grief, you become very single-minded. There, you know, nothing else really matters. I, I, I clearly remember that. It's like, I don't care. I, I just, I, nothing, nothing matters. Nothing makes sense. Your world's upside down. You're trying to get a grip on your own emotions, let alone the circumstances that are driving them. And so she's in that place. You've got to realize she's saying, some, she'll say some goofy things. I mean, I, I want to be respectful, but she'll say some things that don't make sense as she goes through these interchanges, both with the angels and with the men. It says uh, that in verse 13, that they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, my Lord. She's still thinking he's dead, but he's still her Lord. What does that speak to me? And I don't know where they have laid him. And she's, she's goes into this dialogue and, and she's, it's interesting here. She's talking about her Lord. She's trying to figure it out. She's trying to process the scene. And she doesn't understand that he's risen from the dead. Verse 14, and when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and she didn't know that it was Jesus. Interesting, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. And so Jesus, I don't know why she didn't recognize him, but I believe he held off her having the ability to recognize him because he wants to develop her faith. He wants her to come to believe. He wants to see uh, that she understands what's going on here. Uh, she didn't expect him to be there. But you got to understand something. Jesus now, having just risen from the dead, he is out collecting, folks. He is collecting his purchased possession. He has just purchased humanity. 
Now, it's interesting, in all of the places where he appeared, he doesn't appear to the unbelieving people who had put him on the cross. He doesn't appear to any of them. Not at all. There's no record of him appearing to his enemies. But there are five appearances on the day that he resurrected. There's, he appears here to Mary Magdalene. He appears to the other women who are with her. And he appears, interesting, in the middle of this whole thing, we see recorded uh, in the other Gospels, in, in, in Mark and in Luke, where he appears to the men on the road to Emmaus which is a small community uh, just a little bit to the west of Jerusalem. A, a, a short walk, not a long walk, but these guys are walking on the road to Emmaus, and they were on the inside. They understood what was going on. They were marveling at the resurrection when he appears to them. It's the same day. And he conceals his identity from them until, remember, they get to, uh, at that night, they get to the place where they're there with him and, and breaking bread with him, and he opens their understanding. I love the way that passage ends. They're talking among themselves because, you know, here, this is the Word of God, explaining the Word of God, talking about the Word of God. I mean, this is some pretty, I would love to have the recording of that teaching when he teaches these guys on the road. I mean, that would be an amazing teaching. And we'll look at that probably next week when we look at what is meant when he opens these guys' eyes and he breathes on them the the life of the Holy Spirit. Um, but he, he appears to these guys onto the road of Emmaus. And we're also told that he appeared personally to Peter the same day between... Now, in John 20 here, it starts with the morning and then it ends looking... at Well... It goes to that evening there in the upper room when he appears to them. And then it goes out a week from there. But on this day, he also appears to 10 of his disciples because Thomas is gone. He's absent when he appears to them. So he appears to a number of people. He is out seeking his people. He's collecting his purchased possession on this day. In verse 15, Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? So he doesn't just ask her why, he asks her who. And there's a different tone than the angels. The angels simply say, why are you weeping? And, and they're drawing out of her what she's thinking is going on in this scene. Now, Jesus goes further than that. He says, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking in this? So it's not just why, but it's who. And he's not toying with her. He's wanting to break through her unbelief. He is truly wanting to draw her into the understanding of what's going on here. Uh, continuing in verse 15, it says, She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. This doesn't make sense. He weighs probably 175 pounds, 200 pounds, who knows, but, I mean, he's a full-grown man in his prime and his body's been packed with 100 pounds of spices and it's probably hardened up because that was the design in that is that when they embalmed a body with these spices and the strips of cloth it would harden up so it'd be like trying to pack away a 250 pound board i mean she's saying just tell me where he's at and i'll take care of it i'll pick him up and again, she's speaking through her grief. She's desperate to know what happened to her Lord in this. She's not trying to do the math. She's not trying to figure it out. She is grieved. She's desperate to find out what happened to Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Mary. 
And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Now, she had been with Jesus for the last three, three and a half years. Uh, she came to know him early in his ministry. And she traveled with him. She knew the tone. She knew the inflections of his voice. He didn't have to say anything more than her name. That would have resonated inside of her. Um, it, that would have imprinted on Have you ever had that kind of an experience? I remember when we were, my wife had a, a, a major birthday. We don't do ages. But she had a major birthday. And we had company. We lived in far northern California in an agricultural rural area. We had company come down from Washington and Oregon. And she grew up on a cattle ranch called the Circle 7 Ranch. And from the time she's a little girl and on up into her teens. And, and so the family actually rented the ranch. It had become a resort in the meantime. It's a beautiful place right on the Fall River and stuff. Anyway, and it was where she had grown up. And they thought, well, what a great place to have Stacy's birthday party. So, you know, I had gone to great lengths to try to misdirect her all day. I mean, I even changed her parents' cell number to where when my phone rang, it would say mom and dad at home in McMinnville because that's where they live. And so they'd call from their cell and say, mom, she'd look at, oh, mom and dad calling from Oregon. And so, I mean, I'd just done all of this. I'd worked really hard to try to deceive her. And I told her when I married her, I said, I'll never lie to you unless I'm going to bless you with something. Then I'll probably uh, do what I can to throw you off the track. I, so she got in the car and I immediately went over to the passenger side and I produced a blindfold and she said, what's that? And I said, it's going on you. And I blindfolded her and I got to the end of our driveway, which is on a state highway. And I drove the car in a bunch of circles so she wouldn't know which direction we're going. And I, I mean, I got outside this old church out in the middle of nowhere uh, and I stopped and I said, I have to go pick something. I was waiting for the timing to be exact because we had synchronized our watches with the people at the ranch, right? And so I'm doing all that and I, I get out of the car and I say, honey, this is a bad neighborhood. So it, don't open the door for anybody unless you hear knock, knock, knock. And she's going, okay. And, and I said, so if anybody opens the door and you haven't had those knocks, you better just take off the blindfold and run. Get out of there as fast as you can. I don't want you to be in danger. And she's like, all right. You know, and so all of that, I did all of that. And here's my point. We get to the driveway of this ranch. We're going down the driveway and the driveway goes like this and then it has a little jog, right? Just a little jog. And we're going down and I take the little jog in the driveway and she goes, we're at the circle seven. And I went, how? And I, I had to really lie then. But <laughs> <laughs> what I realized was that that road, she had done it so many times. That little jog had imprinted in her memory. It was cemented in there. I mean, she knew where she was, blindfolded, as thrown off the track as I could possibly get her. And she goes, we're at the Circle 7. Oh, no, we're not. No, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I didn't even think about that. But what's happening here? When Jesus says, Mary, there's an instant recognition. She knew that voice. She knew the inflection. She knew the tone. She knew the love. She knew the love. And I can only imagine that as she turned to look at him and the lights came on, that the floodgates opened even more. But this time, tears of joy, not grief.
And so what happens there, he says, Mary, and she turns, she says, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. She's not addressing him as her teacher. She's, or a teacher. She's addressing him as her teacher. Rabboni is an intimate term. It means teacher, but rabbi means teacher. Rabboni means my teacher. Intimate. And she's saying, she's giving him a sign of respect as a salutation, but she's also making it very, very personal at this point. got to realize that she's still, she had been seeking Jesus. She'd been seeking a dead Jesus with all her heart. And now he's alive. The other thing that strikes me about this, folks, is she has no different access to Jesus than you or I. There's no difference in the access to him or the access to his love than you or I do. This is a beautiful scene, but I'll tell you what. It has every bit as much value to be played out in your life, in my life, as here at the tomb of the resurrection. That's the God that we serve. That's the Jesus whose love is poured out on your life, on my life. What a, what a glorious thing. What a glorious scene this is. She comes looking for a body to embalm. And now it says in verse 17, that he's saying, don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and my God and your God. Now, there's some bad theology out there that, that says, well, he said, don't touch me because I've not yet ascended. And no, 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 no. No, he's not saying that. He's not saying don't touch me. He's saying, Mary, things are different now. I mean, she latches on to him. She's been desperate thinking that his body was gone, that it was stolen, that it was nowhere to be found. And all of a sudden he's standing there alive in front of her. And she grabs him thinking, I'm not letting go of this guy. I am not going to lose him again. And he's saying, wait, Mary, it's, it's a new day. It's Things are different. And, and he's, he will continue to indicate how different things are as this chapter unfolds more. And so as he, as she grabs him, he says, wait, don't stop. Stop. Mary, I'm not going anywhere, but I have something for you to do. And, and he says, go to my brethren. That's significant, folks. Up until now, Jesus has called his men his servants, and then he elevates them. And he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. But nowhere until this moment does he refer to them as his brothers. And I think that that's an awesome term. If you know me for very long, if you're a believer, you will hear me refer to you as brother or sister because I believe that that's a covenant term. That is something that's born here at the tomb when Jesus, his first addressing of his people, is referring to them as my brothers. And the bond that we have is closer than a brother. The bond that we have with Christ is closer than a family, than, than the blood ties that we have. And I'm not diminishing those. What I'm doing is elevating Christ because he calls you brother. He calls you sister. And that starts here. This is the very beginning of the new covenant as on this side of the cross, on this side now of the resurrection, he's beginning to lay the groundwork for the church already. And he says, don't cling to me. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and my God and your God. Um, 
we don't know. When he refers to the ascension here, we don't know if this is the event that would happen 10 days before Pentecost, 40 days out from now. I don't know if this is the ascension that we see in the Gospel of Luke and in the beginning of the book of Acts, or if this is something different. We don't know, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but we do know is that what Jesus is speaking is truth. He's saying there are things that are different now. I am ascending to my Father. And, and what he's doing, he's going to open the way for her to have a more intimate relationship with him than she ever could have uh, in the days of his flesh. And that's the truth for you and I, that the way is open for us to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. I mean, there is this woman. She, she looked out at him when the demons were fleeing, when they were coming away from her. And she saw, she looked into his eyes, the same eyes she's looking into here in the tomb as he utters her name. And she latches on to him as though, I am never letting you go. And guess what? She never would. She let go of him physically. But again, the way would now be open because of the, the cleansing from sin that humanity has got in front of us that to simply come to him by faith and say, Lord, I believe this. I believe this. I truly believe this. And now come by your Holy Spirit, indwell me, inhabit my life and direct the course of my life, not from the outside, not with a bunch of rules like we saw in that video this morning, but come and live in me and direct the course of my life from within that I might glorify you, that I might cast the light on you, that I might show your greatness, that I might show the majesty of your love. That's the resurrection. That's what's starting here. That's what's being inaugurated right here at the tomb. Before he even leaves the tomb, before Mary gets away again, he's sending her now. She's going to be the first apostle to the apostles because she's the first one who is sent by Jesus. Now, what he's saying here is, when he's saying, my father and your father, uh, he's saying, he makes a distinction. It's my father and your father, my God and your God. And there is a clear distinction there in the relationship because his, because he was his father and his God by nature. Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, God, the man, my father and your father, and yours by grace. See. Because the way of grace has now been opened for any who would, would simply come to be able to experience Jesus. And so my father, your father, my father and, and, and my God by nature, your father and your God by grace. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples uh, that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So interesting that, that God uses, and I don't mean this to be demeaning in the least, as a matter of fact, it's remarkable because in that culture, women were not looked upon as reliable witnesses. Women were still treated as property in the first century up until Jesus. He was the first man in all of history that elevated women to equal status as men. And, and so here he uses a woman to establish these things at the tomb and he sends her first to go and to tell the guys her testimony in a first century court would have been tossed out. But God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He uses the, the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And he's using this woman, this simple woman who simply loved him. Not a famous woman. 
Yeah, she's famous now because she's in the Bible all over the place in the Gospels. But he uses this woman who simply was devoted to him to go and to begin the work of spreading the news that he is alive from the dead. Interesting, as she goes, Mark chapter 16 tells us she went to the men and she told them what Jesus told them to tell them and they didn't believe her. So they said, no, they, no, 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 wait, no, we don't believe that. Luke chapter 24, when uh, Jesus goes to the men on the road to Emmaus, they're marveling at the things that he's doing. We're going to look next week at when he gets to the upper room. And, and, and as he opens these men's heart, as he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at what does that mean? What does that mean to them? What does it mean to us? Uh, we see in God's word, there's a with and an in and an upon. Yeah, the Holy Spirit would come upon them at Pentecost, but and the Holy Spirit had been with them, illuminating these truths, giving John even the ability to process the scene in the tomb and to understand what it meant. But when he breathes on them, he's preparing them for 40 days of instruction. He's preparing them to disciple them on this side of the cross, on this side of the tomb, to begin now to do the work that would bring the church into existence. So back to Matthew 16, there in the Golan Heights, when he, it said at that time he, he began to tell his men, that's where we started this morning, he began to tell his men that he had to go, that these things had to take place, and, and that he would be crucified and raised on the third day. Now on this side of the cross, he would go and he would commission his men to do the same. And, and the, the story just gets better from here. From here through the end of this gospel, just a really exciting narrative. I'm glad that we're through the tough stuff, the trials. We looked at the six trials, the six illegal trials that he went through. We looked at the horror of the crucifixion. We looked at the profound sadness of him being buried and put into that tomb. Interesting, the Bible doesn't say anything about what happened with these people during the days that he was in the tomb. But can you just imagine? Can you just imagine this guy that you thought was going to usher in the kingdom? You, you thought this guy was the fulfillment of all that had been prophesied. And he was. They just misinterpreted what his mission was. And to see, to walk with him, to see these miracles, to see him bend nature over and over again, to see all of this stuff. And I mean, the profound things that had gone on, to see that he actually thinned the ranks there when he's with the woman or with the crowd uh, and, and feeding the 5,000. They totally misinterpreted. They say, well, we, you know, we love him because he fed us. And he says, no, no, no. You got to eat my body and drink my blood. If you want to part with me, he thins the ranks on purpose. He goes forward from there. And, and he fulfills his ministry to the people in general. And then he does this hours-long ministry in the upper room to his men. And then it culminates with the cross and now the resurrection. And then we'll look at what happens with the Holy Spirit being given and then what's going to happen with uh, now with Peter being restored as we get into chapter 21. Great stuff ahead, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you love us the way you do. That... The crucifixion.